millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome back to Signals to Danger. Yet again, welcome back to another episode, episode 13, in fact, although... Given the subject matter, I think we'll probably forgo a conversation about bad luck. Speaking of bad luck, you might be able to hear my voice is not fantastic at the moment. So I have been trying to put this off um, as I have done in the past, but we're now nine o'clock in the evening on uh, the day before release day. So I think I should just crack on with it. I'll start this episode, as I always do, by thanking all of you who keep coming back and those of you who are here for the first time as well. Continue to like, share, subscribe, all the uh, things you can do, depending on what platform you're using. If you're allowed to leave reviews on the platform that you listen to the podcast on, please do that. It does uh, it does drive some more people towards us. Remember, if social media is your thing, you can uh, follow the podcast on Twitter at, at signals to danger. Or again, you can follow me personally at, at Daniel Foxrail. If you've listened before, you'll know that I'm on Patreon as well. And that means that I uh, want to say a special thank you again to new patrons since the last episode. Andrew, Ryan, Matt and Bavarian Banshee, probably not your real name. Welcome to Team Signals. If you do sign up to Patreon, you get some extra content, a platform to chat to me on. And I've just done my first Q&A. Exclusive to patrons, um, they've submitted questions, I've answered them, um, and there's more of those to come in the future. So if it sounds interesting to you, please visit patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. Like last time, we don't have any new REIB episodes, um, any new REIB reports, sorry to pick apart. So I think it's probably time to move straight into episode 13. On the northern shoreline of the Firth of Tay, rescuers and railwaymen alike took stock of the scene in front of them. As the wind whistled in, they looked upon two battered carriages that were now draped over the edge of the seawall, and a further two laid in the mud of the estuary below. With the emergency services crawling over them like ants, for this episode, 
The year is 1979, and we've taken a trip to Invergowrie. Investigators at the scene search through the wreckage for the injured. At least 13 people are known to have died. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of those accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. The first step of any of these episodes has been to show the time of the accident in context, so with that in mind, let's step into 1979. The rail industry gets off to a cracking start with a 24-hour strike, but uh, this was only a small part of the wider winter of discontent. The 1st of May saw the inauguration of the Jubilee Line, London's newest tube. The day after, it had been opened by the Prince of Wales. Later in the month, in an event you must consider significant regardless of your political leanings, Margaret Thatcher left the Conservatives to a win in the general election, making her the first female Prime Minister of the UK. Sadly, the fact that this is another episode set in the 70s means that we find ourselves yet again discussing the Troubles. On the 27th of August, Lord Louis Mountbatten was assassinated on his boat while on holiday in Ireland. On the same day, 18 British soldiers were killed by bombs in the Warren Point Massacre. All of which brings us, more or less, to a chilly October morning. Around 40 miles to the north of the Scottish capital Edinburgh, you'll find the city of Dundee. Home to 150,000, this city sits upon the north bank of the Firth of Tay. Now, for those of you with a head for railway history, I'm sure your ears have already pricked up. And probably because the two and a half mile wide body of water plays host to the Tay Rail Bridge. This is an undeniably impressive structure, which starts facing west as it leaves the shoreline of Dundee, but then climbs and makes an almost 90 degree turn to the south. This points traffic leaving Dundee's central station in the right direction to cross the gulf. For nearly two miles the lines cross over a windswept open estuary before the safety of Wormit on the south bank. All of which sounds very dramatic in a world where things can go wrong, but never fear, the bridge which currently sits here has stood without incident since it was opened in 1887. But I use the term currently for a reason. The reason this bridge is so well known actually relates to another bridge, the first one. That bridge was not quite so long lived. On the night of the 20th of December 1879 at 7.15pm, the central spans of the bridge gave way during a winter gale. A train with six carriages on had been crossing at the time and was plunged into the icy waters of the Tay, killing all 75 people on board. That figure was an estimate, but the the dramatism here is not lost on anybody. Structural failure saw off the first Tay Rail Bridge, and its replacement was understandably subject to some fairly stringent inspections, and like much of Network Rail's estate, it still is. 
However, while the Tear Bridge disaster is certainly very prominent in the collective memory of both the industry and indeed the nation, it isn't the focus of today's episode. Maybe another one down the line. In fact, we're not even interested in the line which curves south from Dundee waterfront. Today, we're looking at the line which continues west along the north bank of the Tay, heading inland and towards Glasgow on the west coast. After leaving Dundee Station, this Glasgow to Dundee line stays straight when the bridge to Edinburgh starts out across. Then it skirts the edge of Dundee Airport before it makes a sweeping left-hand curve out along the shorefront, and there, only four miles from the platforms in Dundee, five minutes by train, is the seawall at Invergowrie. The morning of the 22nd of October was a clear and fair one. The calm shattered by the noises of diesel engines turning over on depots and in stations across Scotland. One such engine sat within the Class 25 locomotive 25083, and at 8.44 in the morning, the 1250 horsepower engine surged to pull the locomotive out of Glasgow's Queen Street station. Behind the locomotive were five passenger carriages. Four second class and the rear brought up with a first class one. Together, the six vehicles made up two Lima 3-1, a passenger service from Glasgow across the country to Dundee. With driver Kroll firmly sat in the driving seat at the leading end of the train, accompanied by his assistant, Mr Forsyth, Lima 3-1 started the climb out of the station. The line between Queen Street and the outskirts of the city has a steep gradient, so Kroll opened the throttle up fully and left it there. Now, this journey wasn't particularly smooth that morning. However, admittedly, later in the day, that will seem like a bit of an understatement. On the climb out of Queen Street, despite the throttle being fully open, there were two occasions where the unit stopped taking power. This niggling fault seemed easily enough rectified. Kroll closed the throttle and reopened it, and this seemed to restore power. And then he had to repeat this process a second time when the fault reoccurred. From that point onwards though, the journey was reasonably smooth. No issues up until the point the train was approaching Hilton Junction, just to the south of Perth. Once again, the locomotive lost power. However, this time it came to a stand. Kroll was now faced with every train driver's second profession, fault finder extraordinaire. He saw no obvious warning notifications on the console of the unit, so he went back into the engine compartment. While in there, he found a warning lamp lit, the Earth Fault Light. Unlike the diesel hydraulic Class 52 we discussed last time in the Ealing episode, the 25s were diesel-electric locos, so the diesel engine, or prime mover, as it is known in this context, is used to power a generator. The electricity generated by the prime mover in a diesel electric in turn powers a number of traction motors. In the case of the Class 25, that number is four, connected in parallel. It's these traction motors which power the wheels and move everything along the tracks. If the system detects an earth fault, or thinks that it does, it will prevent power being taken to avoid damage being caused to the traction motors or other components. When confronted with this earth fault light, Kroll followed some tried and tested solutions to the problem. After resetting and then isolating the switch, he found he could obtain power again, and the service was able to continue on to Perth, 
where a fitter, a mechanic, was waiting to meet them. When Lima 3-1 arrived in Perth with the Earthforts which isolated, it was decided by the fitter that they would be able to continue onwards to Dundee, and so the train carried on, out of the station, over the River Tay, and started its run along the north bank of the Firth. Just under an hour after the 8.44 left Glasgow, another train was readied for departure. One Alpha 25 was a passenger express, bound for Aberdeen but on the way it too would call at Dundee, crossing Scotland before heading up the east coast. Composed of seven carriages, five second class, one first class and a buffet car, Alpha 25 was hauled by another diesel electric locomotive, 47208. The Class 47s are a more powerful machine than the 25s, with over a thousand horsepower in excess, and they were used for both heavy freight duty and those of them that were fitted with train heating were used for express passenger services like this one. Alpha 25 pushed onwards out of Glasgow, making the climb to the suburbs easily, and then travelling northeast towards Perth. On the way, Robert Duncan and his assistant William Hume came up against a few minor delays, and despite the power of their locomotive, by the time they were leaving Perth, they were around eight minutes delayed. They too drew out of the platforms at Perth, eastbound, following in the path of 2 Lima 3-1. As Lima 3-1 had left Perth, driver Kroll had paid close attention to the ability to take power, making sure that no repeat of the earlier issues was taking place. However, it appeared that the fitter was correct. The locomotive appeared to be working correctly. Around nine miles to the east, they called at the small village of Errol without issues and continued on to Lorfagan, around two miles west of Invergarry. On the approach, Kroll and Forsyth saw the distant signal, a colour light one, at caution, showing a yellow light, although by the time they reached it, it had cleared to a green aspect, meaning they could continue on uninhibited. They then reached the home signal and a section signal, which were of a semaphore type, where the aspect was shown by a signal arm being raised and lowered. I think we've covered this before, but just in case, the signal arm is a red bar, which displays the aspect, or signal, depending on its position. This bar is displayed horizontally when the aspect is restrictive, so stop at a home signal or caution at a distance, and at a 45 degree angle when it's clear. Homes, distance and section signals are all component parts of absolute block signalling, and if you need a bit of a quick explanation on that, we do cover it in the Irk Valley Junction and Castle Carry episodes. After passing the signals at Longfagan, 2 Lima 3-1 called at the seafront station of Invergarry. When they set off again, it was as if something was holding the train back. They pulled out of the station slowly, almost creeping. About the time the rearmost of the carriages had cleared the station, Kroll brought the train to a stand and went to examine the locomotive. He believed that the brakes may have been binding on the late bogey, 
so he shut the engine down and restarted it. Nothing like a good old turn it on and off again. Considering how close Dundee now was, Kroll was keen to get the train and his passengers there. A breakdown here would have a significant impact on the punctuality of the network, not least considering the fact an Aberdeen Express was due to follow the Dundee train shortly after it passed through the area. Restarting the train seemed to do the trick, and they travelled onwards a couple of hundred yards before Forsyth called out to Kroll to tell him that in the engine compartment, one of the four traction motors was beginning to catch fire. Fire on a train is not a good place, so the train was promptly brought to a halt and the service declared a failure and shut down. It would go no further. The two climbed down from the loco to have a look and examine it from the track bed, looking at the brakes and wheel sets. The pair decided that Forsyth would tell the guard about the failure and so he decided to walk back along the train, while Kroll climbed back into the cab. And at that point, a journey that had been problematic and frustrating turned disastrous. He felt a sudden, tremendous impact, and he was thrown into the engine compartment of the locomotive. Without a doubt, things had gone terribly wrong. But to understand what had happened, we need to go back to the journey of 1 Alpha 25. When we left it at Perth, the express was eight minutes late. It set out along the Tay, with Duncan at the controls and the guard and Mr G McRitchie at the rear. On the approach to the home signal at Longforgan, the train slowed to a walking pace as the signal was at danger, although it pulled off, which is railway slang for cleared, as the train approached, allowing the train to pass it at a slow rate of speed as the section signal ahead would likely still be at danger. This was yet a further delay, but not uncommon. In fact, as the rear coach rolled past the signal box at Longforgan, McRitchie leant from the window of the train and shook his fist in mock disgruntlement at the signaller, stood there by the lever frame of the box. This was of course received in the right spirit, and the signaller waved back in acknowledgement. McRitchie walked across the carriage to have a look at an area where stones had been thrown from earlier in the day, but saw nothing. He then felt the train begin to accelerate. He walked back across the carriage and looked out. Around a coach and a half ahead of him he saw the signal arm, not fully raised but not fully horizontal. He assumed that the Longforgan signaller had returned the signal to danger and that it hadn't quite returned fully. In any case, he knew Burton to be a competent driver, so it couldn't have been anything else. The train continued accelerating, reaching what McRitchie thought to be a normal speed. He stared out of the offside window of the train, looking out over the opening firth when he noticed a train stood on what he thought to be the opposite line ahead, past Invergari station. With horror, he realised that it was not on the opposite line. It was on the down line, headed towards Dundee, directly in their path. About exactly the same time, the guard of the stationary train, J. Barry, was moving through the carriages towards the rear. He knew that the train had yet again come to a stand and was most likely failed, so he decided to go to the rear to place some protection. Around about the point where he reached the fourth carriage from the front, he heard the noise of an approaching train. With trepidation, he looked swiftly out of the windows and saw the express bearing down on them. He shouted a warning to the passengers. What more could he do? 
The 125-tonne locomotive collided with the rearmost coach of the stationary 844 at around 60 miles an hour. The force of the collision threw the two rearmost coaches of the train clear over the seawall next to the track. They landed 30 or so metres away from the downline, 11 metres below on the muddy foreshore of the estuary. The fifth had been heavily damaged at its rear end, and both lay sideways in the mud. The bogies of both coaches were missing. The next two coaches were lifted over the wall but remained coupled together, hanging in almost a chain direct diagonally down to the mud. The third had ended up lying on its roof, its bogeyless underside to the sky, and the second coach lay on its right-hand side atop the crest of the sea defence. The final carriage, the first, was still connected to both the second carriage and the locomotive, bridging the distance between them across the upline. The locomotive itself was still railed and upright. The tremendous force needed to catapult 40-ton carriages these distances had not left the locomotive at the express unscathed. It was heavily damaged. Its leading cab crushed beyond all recognition, and the front half of the locomotive body a crumpled mass of metal. The first two carriages of the express were derailed and damaged, however the lion's share of the energy had been absorbed by the locomotive, piled ahead of and on top of the wreckage were the bogies of the thrown carriages. The peaceful autumn morning on the banks of the Tay had been shattered by a traumatic and violent impact. The accident had been witnessed by locals and the emergency services were summoned, arriving within 10 minutes. During the recovery, the tide started to come in and great difficulty was had trying to right the rearmost carriage. In fact, the rescue craft for the Tay Bridge was called and used to recover the final body from the fifth carriage. As a result of the disaster at Invergarry, 51 were injured and the lives of five were lost. Driver Robert Duncan and his assistant William Hume were killed instantly in the leading cab of the 935. The two passengers who had been travelling in the rearmost carriage of the 844 had also been killed. Dr James Preston and Kazimir Yandrejic, and I really hope I've pronounced that correctly. These four were later joined by a Mrs. May Morrison, who succumbed to her injuries after the initial accident. The only saving grace had been that the tide had been out at the time of the collision. If it had been in, then those who survived the collision in the fourth carriage would surely have drowned. following day, the Minister of Transport, Mr Norman Fowler, gave a report to the House, who told of the circumstances known so far and offered his condolences for those injured in the accident. He also said the following. I have ordered a public inquiry, 
which will be held by the inspecting officer of railways as soon as possible. Until that inquiry has been held, it would be wrong to speculate on the course of the accident. That's true, we shouldn't speculate until we see the evidence, we never should. Despite the fact that so often nowadays speculation seems rife in the media following any accident. The railway inspectorate started their investigation. The two main points that they needed to answer were quite simple. Firstly, had the signals been set correctly to protect the broken down Dundee train? Until the train had left the section, no other train should have been allowed into the area. That's that's how absolute block works. The train had slowed for the home signal. So what had the section signal been set to? The signal that should have protected the Dundee service that broken down at Invergarry. Secondly, and crucially, if the signals had been set correctly, why did driver Duncan take his train past it and continue accelerating into disaster? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. To answer the question on how the signals have been set, we need to look at a few key accounts. The guard of the express, McRitchie, had given an account to investigators. This account uh, supported the signals being worked correctly. As I recounted earlier, he told how on the approach to the home signal, 70 yards from the signal box, that the train had been travelling at a walking pace. The most likely cause for this was that the signal had been set to danger, and the train only moved past it once it had cleared. Unsurprisingly, this account was corroborated by the signalman on duty at Lungforgan Box, Mr. Many. In fact, when interviewed by the railway inspectorate, Many was able to give a full account of the processes that were followed on those days. If you recall from previous episodes, the signalling method used here, absolute block, relies on a few principles for safety. The most important of this is the fact that signal boxes are supposed to pass a train along the route by mutual consent. What I mean by this is that each box will ask the next if he can accept a train and the next box must accept that this section is clear before accepting it. Only when the line clear signal has been sent can that signal box clear the signals for the train to proceed along the line. Both boxes must have agreed it was safe and carried out the correct action before any signals are cleared. At 10.45 on the morning of the accident, Many was offered the 8.44 train by Inchjo, the box before him, 
and with a clear section he accepted it, sending a message back that his line was clear. Shortly thereafter he received the train entering section bell at 10.54. Now that that local train was on its way to him, he in turn offered it to Buckingham Junction, the next box, and it was accepted. Knowing that the line ahead was clear, and his train was accepted, many cleared his section signal, his home signal, and his distant. When the Dundee train approached, it would receive a clear run through to Invergowrie and beyond to Buckingham Junction. Many could see from the box at this point that the section signal was properly off, it was raised. The train passed at 10.56 and he replaced his signals to danger, sequentially, distant, home and finally the section signal. This protected the line ahead of his box and the Dundee train. Four minutes later at 11, Inchtour offered him the 9.35 train, the Express. Many knew that his section was clear, and so he accepted the train at 11.05 he received train entering section. Buckingham Junction had not yet signalled to him that the local train had cleared. When this took place, he would receive a signal from stating train out of section. So at this stage, he knew that he could not offer his train onto Buckingham Junction. Because of this, the distance stayed at caution, and he maintained his home signal at danger. From the signal box, he observed the express train approaching slowly and almost coming to a stand at the home signal. At this point, he cleared that home signal to allow the train to pass over the level crossing and clear it and move towards the section signal another 500 yards along the track, just under the length of the train itself. As per the regulations, the train proceeded at a low speed, around walking paces, to for all intentions the driver should have expected a danger signal, which is what actually was in place. As I said from earlier, many could see the signal from his box and to him showed as fully on or in the danger position. This account would lead us to believe that the section signal must have been placed at danger, but relies on the account of the signal himself. Of course, the position of levers in the box was scrutinised by investigators, but who's to say whether they were moved before they arrived on scene to cover up an error? Sadly, it's probably happened in the past. Now, this is where another very clever feature of the signal system comes into play. Interlocking. We've said before that Absolute Block is safe because it relies on signalers checking and communicating. It doesn't particularly protect against human error, though. So, after some further accidents, the railway came up, as it so often does, with some ways of building on the safety of the system. Interlocking is a system which prevents you from making a change if another situation exists. For example, if lever A is set to one specific position, that will prevent you from pulling lever B. The most common way this was done, originally, was through slides as part of the lever system in signal boxes. The levers would transfer their movement into a long iron or steel rod, which would be in a rack alongside others. If one lever was pulled, say one signal was pulled off at a junction, this would move the rod for that junction, but it would also move another piece of metal, which would slide into a notch for another signal at the junction. This would stop that rod moving, and in turn the signal being set against the other. It's a lot like that um, that children's game or that mobile app game where you would have to slide little pieces of plastic or cars and buses around a grid to move others, just on a much more uh, impressive and mechanical scale. 
it was a mechanical solution to the prolific problem of human error. A very elegant solution, I might add, because as is the case with many of the things that we've discussed on this podcast, that explanation, grotesquely simple. And um, from the first patent in 1856 to the modern railway, the concept of interlocking has been saving lives. The systems developed over time from physical dirty great chunks of cast iron blocking each other's movements, also known under the more eloquent term of mechanical interlocking. The next step was a move to electromechanical interlocking and then onwards to relay interlocking. When we get to relay interlocking, the mechanical slides, levers and switches are replaced by circuitry and an arrangement of logic. One condition must exist to do another thing, etc, etc. As appliances are operated, the change of position operates and opens some circuits that lock out other appliances that would conflict with the new position. Moving to relays massively reduced the amount of space needed for this protection. The current standard, the current development, is electronic interlocking. Specifically in the UK, we have a brand of this called Solid State Interlocking, in which wired networks of relays are replaced by software logic running on special-purpose control hardware. Anyway, you may be wondering why I've diverged on a tangent about interlocking. Well, it interlocks with the story, and I'm so very sorry for that, is the uh, pun of the episode. In any case, Many's version of events was corroborated by interlocking. The down section signal, which he stated was at danger, was fitted with a line clear release, which prevents the signal lever being pulled unless the Buckingham Junction signalman has placed his instruments to line clear. Once that line clear release has been obtained, and the signal lever pulled to clear the section signal, and then replaced to danger, it can't be pulled again until the normal processes have been followed all the way through, and a brand new line clear release has been given by Buckingham Junction. In order to ensure that the lever at Longforgan is replaced, and therefore locked electronically, a mechanical interlock known as a sequential lock is provided, so that unless the section signal lever has been properly, properly replaced, the signalman cannot clear the down-home signal. Which sounds very complicated, but the short version is, unless the signaller at Buckingham Junction sends that line clear, the section signal cannot be cleared. That message wasn't sent, so the signal must have been at danger. All of this means that the first question was answered. The signals were set correctly. Knowing that the signal had been set to danger means that the second question needed answering. Why did Driver Duncan disregard the signal? The one thing that is clearly important to acknowledge is that neither Duncan nor his assistant survived the accident, and so they're therefore unable to give their accounts. In situations such as this, investigators need to rely on the evidence which remained. The signals at Longforgan were semaphore. We've discussed them before, slightly earlier in the episode, and as I said then, it means they show their aspects through positioning of the horizontal arm. Horizontal is danger, 45 degrees means clear. By design, the arm should only ever be at one of those two positions. It follows, therefore, that this would form part of the investigations. 
When the 844 passed the section signal, Kroll and his assistant saw the signal being clearly off at an angle of 45 degrees or thereabouts. However, when the express passed it, Guard McRitchie recalled it as being around about 7.4 degrees from the horizontal. He assumed, as I said earlier, that the signal had been replaced back to danger, but not quite made it there. However, we know by this point that the signal wasn't cleared or replaced back to danger. This is the angle that the arm had remained at. Now, this certainly shouldn't have been perceived as a proceed aspect. The tolerance in the BR rules was that a proceed aspect needed to be between 37.5 and 65 degrees, well away from this. However, considering that the signal was to be viewed from a range of positions and so people who had seen it were asked of their perception. Many of the signaller stated that the danger aspect was seen to be around 2 degrees from the horizontal. This was echoed by a track worker in the area who stated that the arm didn't quite drop to horizontal when placed back to danger. When the signal was examined by engineers following the accident, the physical measured position of the arm was 6 degrees. That was the answer to the question on everybody's lips. Now, this was one degree outside of the five degrees acceptable in the tolerances, but certainly should not have been interpreted as a clear aspect, certainly not by a driver of Duncan's experience. As part of the investigation, the signal was viewed from different locations. One investigator, approaching via the coast road, Mr Murray, gave a clear account of the issue. Inspector Murray estimated the inclination as 12 degrees when first seen from the north side of the line, virtually horizontal when viewed from the signal box, and 17 degrees when seen from the coast road. During the course of the inquiry, investigators also viewed the long fog and down section signal, which had been set at 6 degrees from the horizontal, from the signal box, the level crossing, various points on the roads around Longforgan, and from the footplate of a Class 47 locomotive, which had followed as closely as possible the movements of the 935 on the day. They were struck by the apparent differences in inclination of the signal arm when viewed from these different locations. From the footplate, the most important one, the arm looked horizontal when seen from opposite the signal box or opposite the home signal. However, when closely approaching the section signal, it became quite apparent that the arm wasn't horizontal. What's clear from this is that while the express was moving from the home to the section, it may have been perceived that the arm had moved position. What is clear is that from crucial locations that signal should have shown as a clear danger aspect, when it wasn't the case. In order to understand why the signal itself didn't show that, it was examined. These detailed examinations revealed that the bracket at the base of the signal was quite severely damaged. It had altered the tension of the signal wire, accounting for around 4 degrees of the lift of the arm. Certainly not enough for the signal to have appeared clear. While the bracket's damage was clearly a problem, it can't be blamed for the accident. It was estimated around about a ton's worth of force had needed to uh, impact it to make the damage happen so it was perceived it was probably the result of a chain or similar dangling from a wagon, and was obviously repaired very quickly. The conclusion reached in the investigation was that driver Duncan must have expected the section signal to be at danger, otherwise he would have accelerated immediately after passing the home signal. 
so it became clear that at some point between the signal box and the section signal, he must have become convinced that it had cleared. The lead investigator, Major Rose, who has certainly come up in this podcast before, wrote the following. I believe that after the clearance of the home signal, and having observed that the section signal was on, the driver moved forward, looking towards the signal box until he passed it, and did not again look towards the section signal until he was quite close to it. He may well have been looking back towards the signal box or checking that the train was clear of the level crossing. As he then looked up towards the signal, he might have concluded that it had moved since he had last seen it and that it had, therefore, been cleared by the signalman. This is the only explanation that seems to accord with the known facts. It seems unlikely that a driver of of Duncan's long experience and competence would have passed the signal unless he was sure that it had been cleared, and had he kept the signal constantly in view, I cannot believe that he would have taken it to be clear. It would appear, though, as this must have been a sizable lapse by Duncan, as even though the signal may appear to have moved, as seen from the cab, an inclination of as much as 10 degrees, that signal should not have been taken as a clear signal, but it should have been treated as an imperfect one, a wrong aspect, and in turn it should have been treated as a danger signal. It's certainly not a good reason, but at last a reason for the five deaths could be provided to the families of the victims. Yet again, it's time to turn towards the developments since this accident and how they could be prevented from reoccurring. The signal box at Longforgan was equipped with indicators and repeaters which mirrored the aspects of signals that were further away from the box. This showed clearly what angle the arm was set to, and it could correct the issue of an incorrect angle going unnoticed in the future. We discussed previously in the Castle Carry episode the fact that relying on semaphore signals carries with it an ambiguity of perception, and I will yet again suggest that colour light signalling removes this ambiguity. I think I said in that episode that green and red are green and red at any angle. Now the development of brighter and more powerful bulbs over the decades, moving from candles to bulbs to LED lights, they all mean that colour light signalling became a feasible system to use during the daytime and not just at night. You will not get a new, well you haven't got for a long time, a new signalling installation with semaphores. Across the network, semaphore signals have been mostly removed. However, they are still there in some places, but those locations are becoming further and further apart. With the move from local signalling box into the regional operations centres, semaphore signalling is its on its way out, and as new sections of track are brought into the rocks, we will find that semaphore gradually dwindles into the, well, the heritage industry. As it stands, however... One of the main factors which could have changed the tide at Invergari would have been systems which would have stopped the train and captured the mistake that Duncan made, regardless of what type of signal was installed. And so in turn, yet again, we find ourselves revisiting the same two abbreviations, AWS and TPWS. AWS, which we know very well by now as the automatic warning system, would have sounded a warning horn in the cab of the Class 47 
on the approach to the section signal had it been fitted. Despite Duncan's perception of the angle of the signal, that clear and unignorable horn would have compelled him to bring his train to a stand and to send his assistant back to the box. Or if he had ignored it, or acknowledged the arm and continued onwards anyway, TPWS, Train Protection and Warning System, would have demanded a brake application either on the approach to the signal or at the point he passed it, depending on the way it was set up. We know that TPWS was a product of the 90s and so it couldn't have had an impact here, it just it didn't exist at that time. However, we do know from previous episodes that AWS was certainly available by this point, but not installed everywhere. If it had made its way to the Firth of Tay, perhaps we wouldn't be discussing anything today. To bring this episode to a close, I will yet again discuss memorials. 30 years after the crash, the Drivers' Union, ASLEF, the Associated Society of Locomotive Engineers and Firemen, unveiled a memorial at Dundee Station. The plaque is dedicated to the memory of Robert Duncan and William Hume, an elegantly simple plaque on a wooden backing. The memorial gives an opportunity for the railway men of the present to spend a few minutes reflecting on their colleagues from the past. Thank you for tuning in to episode 13. We really are starting to get through them still. Uh, I know my voice has been terrible in this one, so I'm just grateful you've stuck around till this point. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. Again, if you're interested in supporting us and you want to be part of those Q&As and other bits and bobs, get yourself onto Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Signals to Danger. Until next episode, travel safe.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.